If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We'll be finishing up the second chapter of that book, beginning in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, this morning you can find a black ESV Bible in the seat in front of you, in the pew section in front of you. And you can find 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the passage that we will be reading from at the bottom of page 989. Balance is a difficult thing to maintain. Most of us, if we put down a four-inch wide balance beam, would be able to walk over it just fine so long as it was sitting on the ground. If we move that three feet up, you would probably still be able to walk over it, but with a little bit more carefulness, a little bit more attentiveness to where every step fell. If we were to stretch that beam across the Grand Canyon, many people wouldn't attempt it. Most, I would guess, wouldn't have attempted it. And you would think that your balance was not so good. Balance is hard, and especially as the stakes get higher, we always need to find balance in our lives, whether it's balancing work versus family, whether it's rest versus activity. And such is true with our faith. We must learn how to balance grace without it turning into licentiousness. We must be able to balance holiness without it becoming legalism. We must be people who honestly and earnestly love the truth, but while at the same time being gentle. We must press for justice and yet still love mercy. This is hard, especially when the stakes are high. It's a balancing act, though, that we cannot simply bow out of. We can't look like we might at the Grand Canyon and say, no thanks, I'll go a different way. This is what has been handed to us. We must do something with what we have been handed. As we read through 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, there has been a high priority placed on God's judgment and on God's justice over sinners and those who would reject the gospel and have not obeyed what Paul has proclaimed. There is a good deal of recompense and wrath and anger. There is the beginning of God allowing those who have distressed his people to be repaid for what they have done. There is justice against idolaters. There is judgment for rebels and all who lead them. Yet, this just side of God that's filled with wrath and retribution and anger must be balanced by speaking of his great mercy and kindness, which above all things was shown to the Thessalonians. Let us never think of our God as just but merciless or as forgiving, but a pushover. Neither of these is true. Paul helps then to balance out what he has spoken of in these first two chapters, beginning in verse 13, as we read down through verse 17. If you would read with me. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm 
and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of our God. Paul helps us and helps the Thessalonians and helps probably even himself press for the balance that is needed between justice and mercy, between the grace of the gospel and the righteousness of God here in these particular verses. And I think that we can see this in three distinct movements. The first one is that of gratitude. Paul gives thanks to God for the salvation that is wrought. And he thanks God for the Thessalonians. And in this, I think Paul is saying something of his grand love for the Thessalonians. Luke 15 is an incredibly helpful chapter. We're gonna talk about it again later, even as we've already read part of it. But there is indeed this idea of a treasure being found and rejoicing in that treasure. We are always thankful when things we care for are saved. If you were to leave your wallet at Uno's this afternoon and you were to go back on Monday and you were to find that somebody kept your wallet for you and handed it back to you filled with whatever cash you might happen to have in there, certainly you would be thankful for that. Paul giving thanks for the Thessalonians. Paul's delight to see the grace of God work in them. Paul's thankfulness and gratitude to God for providing them salvation shows that he cares about them. But we ought to note that Paul does not thank the Thessalonians. Although their faith had much to commend it, it was sincere, it was truthful, it was solid, it was a model response to the gospel that was known and imitated all over Asia, but he doesn't thank them for what they have done. He doesn't thank them for all of their response. He doesn't say, thank you, Thessalonians, for listening to my word. No one else was listening to it. I'm so grateful that you were there to hear it so that you might respond to it. I'm grateful for the affirmation that you have given me. He doesn't thank the Thessalonians. He thanks God. For salvation is from first to last, from God, through God, by God, and indeed, all about God. The important fact in this passage, even as we work through it, is that God has loved them. He says, you are brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord. God has loved them, not that they have loved God. It is the idea that God has chosen them, not that they have chosen God. It is that God has called them, not that they got on their knees and called upon the name of the Lord. God has done all of this. Even as Paul says, God chose you as first fruits. Some passages say first fruits, some say from the beginning. It's difficult to tell which one it should be, either one. It is the idea pressing on Paul's mind that God has chosen them. It is what we sometimes call election. That God has chosen from the foundation of the world the people that would come to be saved. It is the work of God on their lives that makes this happen. The choice here is unambiguous. God is not choosing 
Christ and then allowing people to come in, but God is choosing the Thessalonians to be saved. It is interesting that this word for chosen is not the normal word that we would use for chosen, but it is the word that the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament uses for the calling of the people of God in Israel. That he chose Israel. He did not choose Egypt. He did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose Edom. He chose Israel. And given the fact that he's talked already about the fact that they have been loved by God and then chosen by God, a passage, especially Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, is incredibly important. It is very likely that a lot of what Paul is saying here comes directly from this passage. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It's not, it's not because of you. It's not because you were great and grand, because God looked at you and thought, I can make a name for myself out of you people. You have the stuff that it's going to take for me to be able to be glorified in the world. Moses tells us that's not why he chose you. But, Moses says, it is because the Lord loves you and keeps his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did he choose Israel? Why didn't he choose any of the other countries? Why didn't he choose any of the other peoples? Moses is very clear. He chose you because he loved you. It was all due to God. It was God's heart to choose them. It was God's desire to choose them. It was God's own choice. It wasn't about who the Israelites were. It wasn't about the quality of their faith. It wasn't about the quality of their life. It was solely on God's own desire. That choice was to bring the Israelites into relationship with him, and that is indeed what God has chosen these Thessalonians for. Just as he chose Israel in the beginning, now he has chosen the Thessalonians to come into relationship with him, into being saved by him. And Paul then helps us to understand what this salvation is. He interprets it with his next two statements, and he draws, I think, a strict contrast to the very thing that we preached on last week, that these, these rebels and those who followed in the rebellion were deceived, that they loved unrighteousness and had pleasure in it. First he says that you have been saved through sanctification by the Spirit. That is, rather than loving and delighting in unrighteousness, they were set aside for holiness, set aside to be God's people, to look and act and to walk and talk like Jesus Christ did, to be remade in the image of the one who has saved them from the very foundation of the world and especially on the cross. That they were to look like him and walk like him and so he gave his spirit so that they might be that way. And not only to not have pleasure in unrighteousness but to be holy, to be sanctified by the spirit but also belief in the truth. That is, God might, in verse 11, send a strong delusion on the rest of the world. What he sends to them is belief that is true and belief in the truth. So God gives them what they need to be saved. 
not just the belief and true belief and right belief in the gospel, but the spirit that will change them away from their sin and into righteousness and holiness. Paul goes on to say, to this he called you through our gospel. He called you. He didn't allow you to rebel against him, but actually you've rebelled against the flow of the world. As the world goes from unrighteousness to unrighteousness, seeking only their pleasure and their good, indeed God has called you out of that into something better. You might read this and you might think about what I'm saying and as many have done before say, isn't this just narcissistic for God to make everything about him? Isn't it narcissistic and isn't it selfish for God to say, hey, it's my glory, it's my good name, I'm, I'm saving you for my purposes and for me. You can even go back to Ezekiel and he says, I'm about to act not for your sake, O Israel. I'm gonna save you, but it's not for you. It's actually for my name. If God is the generous God that we make him out to be, then why does he care so much about his own glory? Well, first of all, because he can't help it, because he is indeed glorious, and salvation that he has given here as we speak of it in gratitude for what God has done for us, it's simply a recognition that God has done it for us. But what's more is that by humbling ourselves and recognizing that we have no work to do in this salvation, what God then allows us to do by being humbled is to give us more and more and more, that recognizing that all good things come from him, he is all the more prone to give us so much good. Notice, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That same glory, majesty, and power that when he shows up will destroy unrighteous people from before him. That if all of the glory of man and all the power of man and all the majesty of man were compiled into this rebel, into this man of lawlessness, if he was the epitome of everything that men could achieve, that he would appear as nothing before our Lord. Paul says, that's the glory you obtain. God gives, and he gives, and he gives. But we must be humble to be able to get that. Those who dwell in pride, those who think that they have achieved great things and therefore get great things from God, are not the people who receive such glory. We're reminded of this in James 4, where James writes, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The less you think of yourself and the more you think of God, the more God will lift you up. So in all of this, let us follow Paul in gratitude. Let's be grateful for the salvation that has been given to us and to others. And be grateful and 
and be thankful to the God who has done all of this. It is all of God. This isn't to say that the faith that you exhibit isn't actually yours. It is indeed yours. But what brought about that faith, the events that led you to hear the gospel, the reasonableness of mind that allowed you to understand it, the change of heart that allowed you to rightly confess it, all of the events that surround that faith are there from God. He was orchestrating it. He was moving in it. He was the one who did all of it. Let us be glad and rejoice, not just in our salvation, but in the salvation of others, proving both our love for God as God is glorified in that salvation that he visits on other people, but also loving our neighbors. For their salvation from condemnation is a good thing for them, and it ought to be rejoiced over. Listen to how Luke, as we read verses one through seven of Luke 15, how Luke finishes off that next parable from the lips of Jesus. As Jesus says this, what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let us rejoice when sinners are brought to the very kingdom of God. Let us have gratitude for the work that we see God doing in the world. So Paul here speaks of gratitude, but Paul also then, in verse 15, speaks of gravity. He speaks of gravity. Not that these things are weighty or deep, but that they keep us tethered to the ground. They allow our feet to be connected to terra firma. You know, the earth is traveling around the sun at some 67,000 miles per hour. And yet here you are sitting still. Isn't it amazing? What is it that keeps you sitting still? Well, there's a number of things, but at the very top of that list is God's gift of gravity to us. Now, God's gift of gravity doesn't seem so great when you're walking over the Grand Canyon on a four-inch piece of wood, but it seems great when you're standing still and not flying off into the meaningless void of space. What will keep us tethered to terra firma spiritually? What will keep us tethered to the ground? What is the gravity that we need spiritually so that we don't fly off? The Thessalonians themselves have come close to being untethered. They were at the very least highly distressed by this word that the day of the Lord had happened. It tested their faith to a very high measure. This misinformation so very, very wrong and yet trusted, a minor thing, a minor word spoken by someone, a fake letter given by someone, something that they thought was true or that they were playing a joke or they were doing something threw this entire congregation off. It could have shaken them to the point of senselessness and it could have deprived them of their hope and their faith in the world. That's a good reminder to us. These Thessalonians were, as we have hopefully picked up on as we've gone through these letters, people who were filled with faith 
and good works, models of how the word of the gospel should be accepted and lived out. And yet this one little piece of information almost derailed everything that was happening at Thessalonica. It is a reminder that we ought to always be taking stock of our beliefs, where they come from, how we have come across them, where they are grounded to, lest we become untethered from the source of every good thing and fly off into that void of space. Paul says this in verse 15, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Earlier in chapter two, he noted that this misconception about the coming day of the Lord might have been brought to them by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. That idea of a spirit was not that another spirit came, but that that spirit led to some sort of prophecy that was wrong. Paul doesn't know which one it was, whether it was a a faked letter that seemed to be from them or a spirit that backed up what Paul said or an interpretation of something that Paul said. But Paul has already wrote to them to test the spirits. And here he's very clear what they are to test the spirits against. What are they to test these prophecies against? It is to be against their spoken word or their letter, these traditions that Paul brought to the churches. We need to check all things against the word of God. It is important that we see what Paul is prophesying or emphasizing here. Paul thought prophecy was important, and I have no doubt that he thinks it's more important than anyone sitting in this room. Directly after 1 Corinthians 13, when he makes the grand remarks that he makes there about love and the importance of love and the eternal nature of the love that we are supposed to have, at the very end of that passage, the very next sentence in 1 Corinthians 14 is, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. Next to loving one another, the thing Paul wanted most for his people was that they might prophesy, that they might be able to speak a word from the Lord. But even that gift of the revelation that God might give to some people has to be checked against the word of the Lord. First and Second Thessalonians both back this up, and they were among, if not the first two letters of the New Testament written, they were very close to it. So already Paul is saying, you can't just prophesy and have it stand out there. It needs to come back to the word of God. Friends, you can fail and you can fall in this in two different ways. There's probably more. I only thought of two. The first is those who ignore the word and think that they can find their authority elsewhere. I've been in a good number of liberal churches where this happens. I haven't pastored those liberal churches in case you're worried about it, but I've visited those liberal churches and one of the things that they say is, and I remember this very clearly, God still speaks. They had it posted really, but God still speaks. This is very clever. It's very clever for two reasons. One, because it gives them authority to declare what God is speaking If God still speaks and it's not in this book, then where do we get it from? Well, we can get it from sociological studies or philosophy and anthropology that we like. We can define how it is that God is speaking and what it is that he is saying. It's very clever because it gives them authority. And it also means that people who don't agree with us in some way, shape, or form don't think that God is still speaking. So for people who are 
I don't know, like us, who come to the word of God, who think this is where God has revealed himself, you must not think that God still speaks. Such thoughts are, if intended that way, wrong-headed. We still think that God speaks. We think that God speaks to us through what he has already revealed and written, as though this doesn't contain all of the information that we need and that we can ever sort of plumb the depths of what has been given to us, as though reading this through three or four times gives us all of the information that we can ever possibly get out of this, and therefore we can move on with life and wait for God to speak to us more. Now, God still speaks. He just speaks through the same word that he has always spoken through. That's not a danger for many people in here, I don't think. But the second The second way is to also ignore the word. But to ignore the word and to listen to the things that we have always done. To confuse the traditions that Paul brought that were encapsulated in the New Testament with the traditions that we have built up in our own lives. Every once in a while, this is innocent enough. This is pretty prevalent within Baptist churches. And it can be innocent. So you can think of something like during Christmas time, when we think of the shepherds that have come to see the birth, or the wise men, excuse me, who have come to see the birth of Jesus Christ, we think of them as three. Well, that's just because of tradition. Scripture doesn't actually say that. We don't know the number of wise men who came, it's just plural. So it it can be innocuous but it can be deadly. We can fall into the pattern of the world and defend many sort of vaunted traditions as those of Scripture while Scripture speaks directly against those things. And as Baptists, we are right to think back to the 17 and 1800s of many people who defended the institution of shadow slavery by appealing to tradition, amongst other things. They talked about their heritage, as though their heritage was a guarantee of that which is true and good and right, even as Scripture, rightly understood, stood against all of it. Even those who had some inkling that it was wrong, many of those still turned a blind eye to it because we're so intent on holding up tradition instead of letting that tradition be judged by the word of God. Friends, in either way, we are placing ourselves sort of above the word of God. And we need to be reminded that we are not the hammer that shapes the work of the craftsman to be what we want it to be. We don't get to mold and shape scripture to look and to act like we want it to look and act. Rather, we are to be the work of the craftsman. Shaped and formed by the hammer of the spirit and the anvil of God's word. You are to hold fast to these things. Where scripture makes itself clear, stand firm and hold tight. Find out what issues the Bible says are important and what it teaches about those issues. 
where scripture hints, where scripture is somewhat limited, where scripture doesn't speak at all. Allow yourself the freedom to not have opinions on those things. You can, but you don't need to. You can rightfully look at people and say, you know, that issue that you care so much about, scripture doesn't make a big deal out of it, and I gotta tell you, I just don't, I don't frankly care all that much. It's quite liberating. You don't have to have an opinion on every single bit of news that comes down the scroll feed. You don't have to have an opinion on every single law that's passed. You don't have to have an opinion on every single baseball player. You don't have to have opinions on any of those things. Try it sometime. It's great. I don't care about a ton of stuff. But where we ought to care and where the Bible teaches things solidly and truthfully, let us care with our lives. We have to learn to ask ourselves repeatedly and often, what does the Bible actually teach about these things? And allow yourself in humility to learn from others. To learn from others, by the way, who don't think like you, who don't have faith that looks exactly like yours. Learn from people outside of your camp. Listen to their arguments and test them against scripture and say, do these things hold water? Be convinced by scripture and agree that in many aspects of our own tradition, we could be very, very wrong. Experience, therefore, the great gravity of the word of God and allow it to keep you tethered to the truth. So Paul has spoken to the Thessalonians of gratitude and gravity, and now he will speak to them of grace. Where they are, as good a position as the Thessalonians are in, is not enough for Paul. And while they're doing well, he knows that they continually need grace. A one-time infusion of grace is not what God has in mind, because we have sin continually clinging to us, and we have doubting hearts that are not strong enough to not need grace continually. So Paul prays that the Thessalonians, and likewise us, would get a continual infusion of grace. It comes to us in three forms. First, the fact that God loves us. When Paul speaks of God the Father and Jesus Christ loving us, he can point to a number of things. God's continual presence and aid and help in times of turmoil and trouble, God's great promises to us of an eternal future, his steady and constant provision to us of our daily needs. But in all of this, there is no doubt that the most pointedly and empathetic way in which Paul does all of this is to point to the cross. You need to understand what Paul is saying here. Look at verse 18. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. Who loved us. It is not that God doesn't love us anymore. But that we can be sure that God does love us because he has emphatically loved us. That there hasn't been an act in life. There has been an act in history that has shown us the very love that God has for us that the work of the cross is the emphatic symbol of God's love for the people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ forever and ever. So you never need to worry about whether God loves you now because he has already shown you that he loves you. 
in times of turmoil and testing, when the world is dark and indeed destructive, when comfort is fleeting, when pain is sure to be about you, you can be sure that God loves you because God has loved you. If God has done the great thing of giving us his own son in Jesus Christ, giving up the one thing to our sin and to pay for our sin that he loves more than anything else, allowing the son to endure somehow, and I would put rather mysteriously, the pain and agony of the cross, would he withhold his love from us now? Would anything be able to take us away from that love? If he has given us all things, would he not be able to give us all things more? Certainly not. God loves us. And he has provided, secondly, eternal comfort for us. The comfort that the cross of Jesus Christ gives to those who have entrusted themselves to it, entrusted that this is the payment for our sins, entrusted that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead, is eternal comfort. It is not a fleeting comfort, it is not a temporary comfort, but it lasts forever. It is not like the comforts of the world. The comforts of the world are real and true. Fried chicken is a comfort, it's a good comfort. But it is fleeting. A vacation can be comfortable and it can be a nice change of pace and it can be restful. Wealth will indeed get you a good number of comforts in this world. The presence of loved ones will indeed comfort you in this world, but all that the world has to offer by way of comfort, all that the world has to offer you by way of easing your pain, is all circumscribed, all of it with death and decay, because it will come to an end. Entropy is real, and will take with it all of the comfort that this world can give. Wealth, travel, food, loved ones, they will not help you in death. The work of Jesus Christ gives us eternal comfort. It is to be of comfort now, and it will be, as we hope for, comfort forever. It is a comfort that has overcome death. It is a comfort that has overcome entropy. It is a comfort that surpasses the grave and will work on us without end. And therefore, we have good hope. As Paul says, he has given us love and eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Again, not fleeting hope, not the passing hopes of this world, not the I've got my fingers crossed and want this to happen type of hope, but a hope that is sure, a hope that is steady, a hope that is bound to occur. Because we have been unified with Christ. So his death is our death. His life is our life. Because Jesus Christ died and rose again, we have sure assurance every piece of assurance that such is our fate, that dying we already live, and that in death is but a blip of a state for us. Because these things are ours through grace, Paul prays that the Thessalonians might experience them all the more. He says that their hearts, which have been shaken by this sort of distressing news, might be comforted by God in this letter and that their hearts might be established all the more for every good work, meaning, I think, that the nature of their hearts will be made more certain and sure by the works that they do. As Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits, so that their hearts 
might be established to know that God has indeed saved them. One of the things that would have worked against them, thinking that the day of the Lord had already come, is to wonder, are we truly saved? And what Paul is saying, may your hearts be established in this because of the good work that you do. The lives that you live by the grace of God should make you more certain of your place with God. This type of fruit growing from you will establish you as indeed the recipient of grace by God. And when I say that, it is important to realize that even in this, even in your work and in the words that you speak, even in the good things that you produce, you are not the source of that which is praiseworthy or laudatory. It is God who establishes you. It is God's grace that pulses through you. It is God who comforts you. It is God who has wrought this great change in the Thessalonians and indeed in people all over the world. This grace is given to us by very, very ordinary means. Go back to verse 14. Paul says, to this he called you through our gospel, through our gospel. The plain preaching and teaching of God's word. God receives more glory from weakness in human beings where no aspect of what happens can be attributed to them. It is the ordinary means of preaching and teaching that God then uses to bring out extraordinary, extraordinary ends. This is what we hope for. And this is why you, friend, can participate in the glory of God and giving God glory because he uses ordinary people. And I've met the vast majority of you. And you're nice, but you're ordinary. Not one of you can jump four foot high. Really saddens me. I'd love to see that. Not one of you, not one of you is going to make the next scientific breakthrough. Not one of you is going to produce the next great work of literature. Not one of you. You're perfectly ordinary people that God can use to do extraordinary things. Friends, balance is really hard to achieve. We are likely to desire one side over the other, and that sinfully. Especially when we look at passages like 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. We can cheer as many do, for the justice of God. And for that justice to be spent on those who do not know him and to forget, even for the briefest of seconds, that it was his grace that saved us from that same fate. Or we can remember the grace that has been given to us and forget that his justice is rightly delivered without mercy to those who do not know him. But herein lies the balance for us. That we remember the gospel of our Lord. That Jesus Christ himself paid for the justice that he required. That he came to save sinners. That in him and in him alone, justice and mercy and love and wrath meet for us. Cling to that. For faith and sight focused on Jesus and on Jesus alone will get you across that canyon, over the dangers and the tumult of the world, and safely home to your Father. Let us pray.
Father, we plead with you for more grace. For even the power to keep ourselves focused on your son with all that he has done for us and all that he has given to us is weak and ineffective if it only comes from us. Even if our spirits are willing, our flesh has become so enamored with the sin that, that clings so tightly to us that it is indeed weak. Give us that power. Give us more grace. Give us more comfort in your gospel that we might see the good of what you have wrought and in gratitude give you back honor, power, glory, and worship you forever and ever. Amen.